Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. I think he's uh, crotchety in the way that I like. Uh, he's the Larry David guy in the way that I like. He's like, you know, really sharp in this, not, Wait, not so in, you intellectually. You love Jane Fonda, you love Bernie. Yeah, yeah. You are, what has happened to you? I, I have to talk to you after You've this. gotten very soft. I, I, I have, I what have, is happening? I, I bought a house in Nicaragua. It's a long story. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful property, by the way. Um, a collective farm. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly, I'm just, this is your weekly assault of the yeah. news cycle that people yes. make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do all kinds of completely indispensable things at a place called Freethink, usually. Um, but right now I'm here in this particular room <laughs> and I'm surrounded yeah. by a, a bunch of luminaries, phenomenal people. And yeah. I couldn't be more excited to be here with them. Uh, you hear Mr. Michael Moynihan doing his Flavor Flav impersonation, yeah. supporting me, yeah. urging me on. The clogger on I my feel neck. very good. Thank yeah. you for that, no by problem, the way, man. Mr. Moynihan. We, we also have uh, Anthony <laughs> Fisher is in the room. He's, hey. doing, he's doing his usual thing here. Thank you, Anthony Fisher, for supporting us here at the, at the fifth column, taking care of us. We appreciate your contribution. <laughs> Um, and of course, we have. Well, no, Matt Welch isn't here. No, he. I, th- Welch, I think he's. I think he's gone. Matt Welch is a little under the weather today. We found out pretty late, so he's a late scratch. Um, we wish Ugh, him well. A speedy recovery. I promised him that I would bring him whatever medical woo-woo uh, my mom has from her latest uh, multi-level marketing scheme. <laughs> I'm just going to bring him a whole basket yeah. of Malaluca, yeah. all botanical, and uh, what, what else? Herbalife? Herbalife? I mean, is that, a, is does, that still around? Does she, around? does she do Amway? Does she kick it old school? Why not? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> she does. I try my best to not know what it is. Like, so your mom maybe doesn't listen to the podcast, considering you're calling her a scam artist on the podcast. <laughs> I didn't say she's a scam artist. She uh, believes it. Oh. Is it a scam if you really believe it? Are that's, you the scammer? Climb the pyramid. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting yeah. question, Camille. It's a question that we should direct at someone who is an expert in many things. The fabulous, great, remarkable, one of my favorite people in New York, I said before we started recording, yeah. Barry Weiss of the New York yeah, Times. Barry Weiss. So happy to be here. In the building. Nowhere else I'd building. rather be. Barry, I apologize for us starting late this evening. It's okay. Um, Jewish time, Why are baby? you looking at me? Well, Barry, the reason we're late is because <laughs> Michael Moynihan is <laughs> that, a superstar. That doesn't even need I to mean, be said. Yeah. Uh, obviously. We had to. <laughs> the funny thing was, is they said the lighting, uh, they want to do all those reads again. Yeah. Because the lighting was different. And, and for those of you, this will probably go out tomorrow. Let's plug the new show. I have to right tomorrow mm-hmm. kept this under my hat because i didn't even know what the hell was going on i was recruited into into a cult and uh i have a show uh, starting tomorrow uh, and camille will be a guest on the first episode oh, unless i'm um, scratched so, well the one the, i'll just give you two things that are, it's uh, camille is on and uh jane fonda obviously together? when there's two things no together unfortunately <laughs> she said she didn't want to be on with camille <laughs> she's changed her ideology and she's now very right wing i was quite surprised by this and uh, denounced the Viet Cong. i said good jane this is a big big show. no the actually how do those two people fit together in one episode um, what is the theme of this well, show well you're gonna have to watch it it's where called do i the, watch it it's called the impeachment show so i don't know if what the theme is the, ob- um, the obvious first yeah. guest is jane fonda yeah and um the the other name by the way that we were going to do and i'm just gonna give this away was actually that was a better name but uh was uh, everything's fine 
as the name of the show, everything's fine. It can be taken on about nine different levels. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, she was great, actually. I really, really, really but, enjoy her. But what was she talking about? You know, she's getting arrested every week. I know. Do you know about this? Yes, I do. So she, we, she's like, we, we got her out of the pokey. And she came. Um, How'd she look? First oh, of she all? had knife wounds. I mean, the jail's a tough place, Barry. No, I mean the work. The oh work. my God, she looks amazing. She legitimately she looks actually? amazing. I like. I was hoping that she, we could date, and it didn't happen. I wanted to go out with her. She's she's a babe. She's Barbarella at eighty one. And I'll tell you what, the best thing um, is watch the, uh, the HBO documentary about her. There's that, it's called it's like Jane Fonda and Five Acts. And I was like, I have no interest in this. And I saw it in a plane and I watched it again before I interviewed her. And it is great. You fell deeply in love. I did. She's very, yeah. very funny. She makes a Lindbergh baby joke in the first like 10 minutes of the documentary. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're a sucker it's for good. That. It's good. Like, and look, here's the thing. The one thing I would say politically about her is that um, she says one thing that's very surprising. Very surprising. You have to watch the show to find out that I was like, oh She's my literally God. an exponent of every view that you despise. Uh, yeah, mostly. Um, <laughs> mostly. Let's hear the one surprising thing other than no, apologizing can, uh, for communism. No, it's, it's, it's she, you, have to, you have to watch the show for that. Um, no, but she has apologized many times for the, the, the Hanoi stuff and um, it's, it's rather convincingly. And I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll say is that there's a lot of people that have gone the same route and all of us in this room have read them, been taught by them, <laughs> seen them give lectures who have never apologized. So I will give her that, that she actually had the stones to uh, apologize. And actually, it was a pretty effusive one. And, um, and and I give her credit for that. But it was it was a fun interview. And she was she was very nice. I liked her a lot. So. And then what about Camille? What, Cameo. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. We're, shoot, we're shooting that tomorrow. Okay. It airs tomorrow and we're shooting it tomorrow. That's right? sounds, I'll show up. It's like yeah. a really top notch Are we going to talk about Dave Matthews? Um, well, we no. have two uh, Sony ha- uh, camcorders. They're great. They shoot on <laughs> something called DV tape. Well, I just, I watched the trailer on Instagram and it just was you sitting at a table drinking, drinking whiskey. Yes. Like, cool. <laughs> but how? Like, you want to watch the show now, don't you? Of course yeah, I do. Of course. I would you watch exas- anything you do. <laughs> yeah. Exasperated breath at the end. Yeah, I was, I was frustrated by the whole process <laughs> and that's not wrong. Well, I think uh, it's going to be a hit. And there was another little clip that I put on Instagram, too, of a very drunk man in Bay Ridge. Uh, and there's be, there'll be two segments in the show of me talking to e- extremely intoxicated Trump supporters in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is which was really which was really fun. Really, it. really fun. Do you have to go all the way to Bay Ridge to find a Trump supporter? Y- 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 well, it's the funny an out, thing. An out Trump supporter. Yeah, oh, it was funny because we were in a bar where we found somebody who wasn't a Trump supporter. And that was the, that was a clip that I posted, and he was like talking about how, and he was wasted, and he was talking about how he loved Michelle Obama. It was amazing. Um, so there's a little bit of that in there, but yeah, no, there, everyone there was, everyone was a Trump supporter. Everyone. Russians? Who were you talking to? No, they're like, it's, I think Bay Ridge has like the highest concentration of like ex-cops or like former NYPD and and, and firefighters and stuff. So we met a lot of those guys and there are just a lot of Trumpy guys and they all say the exact same thing. I mean, it's like, I know the script from back to front when you ask about Trump. And it's it's pretty much Trump's own script. It's I've pretty had, amazing. I've had to work with a bunch of contractors in and around Brooklyn um, over the course of the last couple of months. And about 75% of those contractors of whatever background kind of seem to like Trump. Yeah. Um, and in many cases will explicitly talk to me about Trump once they discover that I operate in political <laughs> circles and talk to people with unusual views and that I have heterodox views myself. They at least feel safe 
yeah. disclosing this affiliation. Well, there was, this is a funny Jane Fonda thing, and I don't know if it's make, made it into the cut. I hope so. Is she was talking about Trump supporters because she went to like Pennsylvania and was like knocking on doors in Scranton and talking to people, which, again, I give her credit for. Most Hollywood people don't do that. She's like trying to meet Trump supporters and mm. see what they believe. And she had this really funny riff about um, how she always needed strong men in her life, which is why she married Tom Hayden and why she married Ted Turner and the French director first, who was, who was like a horrible guy. And she's like, she had this great riff about, about, you know, I can sympathize that Trump is a damaged man because there's been so many of those in my life. And she had a funny, funny little bit about it. And it was, it, she didn't denounce anyone, but mm. that's kind of the way I feel when I talk to these guys. I end up liking all of them, like mm-hmm. a lot, you know, and I, I think Wait, their these views guys are, meaning the Jane Fonda's or the Trumpers? Just the Trump guys. Like, I always and end the, up liking and the, them. And the Jane Fonda's, apparently. Yeah, too. I, yeah, I like everybody. Yeah. I don't know. Is that wrong? No, there's a lot of people you hate. You've oh, my God. Plenty of hatreds. And <laughs> they run, they there run are very three deep. of them in this room right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll point apparently. out there are four people here. <laughs> um but we should we should get into the shits because there yeah. are plenty of things that I've wanted to talk about for some time. One of which, Barry, is your book, which you were here and we announced it like essentially one night when you were here. You weren't breaking the news with us, but it sort of broke in that day. I remember that. Yes. And now you're back and oh we can God. finally talk that about your book. That a was a blur. while ago. Yeah. Long time ago. No, but yeah. it actually wasn't a while. I mean, it was a while ago, but yeah. not, not a lot of time to have written and published a book. That's true. A while ago. Yeah. Are what you saying you the... didn't try very hard? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yes. Yeah. That's, very... my, that's my ad. Yeah. It's real short. Yeah. That's how you spell the word adversary. <laughs> they didn't even copy edit it. so quick. So quick. What, what was the title of that book again? Uh, Do you remember? Do you remember the title of your book? Yeah. I remember. Give us the title of the book. How to fight anti-Semitism. Okay. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. You were at the book party. Can't forget that. You weren't. We I, missed you. I wasn't. And but I, you were. I, I missed it. Yes. Yeah, I missed it. And it was something that was written about. It was. Uh, it was. Michael Moynihan gave some choice yeah. quotes to the New York Magazine guy. Well, if you weren't so fucking busy on book tour, Barry, and like being <laughs> famous all of a sudden, <laughs> you would have heard the, uh, the Fifth Column podcast that we did yeah. where I mentioned this. We and I explained myself. And the, the explanation I gave, and I'll give it again, the, was that, first of all, I, did, I didn't know that I was being quoted. I was just at a book party. Mm-hmm. And also, they made the quote sound so strange when I was basically saying, Barry used to edit me at the Wall Street Journal. And, and a then tablet, a tablet. And a tablet. And so uh, this is, if you had told me back then that this was a woman that was making people apoplectic and fall over and clutch pearls and fainting couches and all this... I would have said that you're mad. That was the quote. Somehow it became something slightly different. That it was like, I'm surprised Barry is famous or something. (laughs) (laughs) She's a piece of garbage. Yeah, I I loved it. It was perfect. It was amazing. But I also, I think you actually said, "Who the fuck is this?" Yeah, (laughs) I was like, I'm always the only one swearing in an article. Please, if if you had told me three years ago that Barry Weiss would be the object of hate anywhere, I'd be like, no. I mean, if you told me Trump would be president, the whole thing is crazy. I've known her for so long, and she was just kind of shy. But seeing her on Bill Maher, I was like, who the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. I, like I don't Did that. I say shy? Because he didn't have a notebook out. So maybe he was like, like, surreptitiously recording me. I don't know. That whole thing could have been so much worse. But uh, it, it was could good. Have been, it was but good. it was kind of a, a, the, a BS premise, because he told me something slightly different. And it told me that he was doing something on the editorial page, about the editorial page, after initially telling me he was doing something on the party. And then he saw, like, my eyebrow arch. Hmm. And he was like, no, it's about the editorial page. 
Huh. But uh, yeah, it's the second time I've. Well, the other thing is like the thing. whole the whole conceit of it was everyone was at this book party talking about how terrible cancel culture is, and it's like no, you asked people yeah, exactly. about cancel culture yeah, exactly. for two hours yeah. and then gave you quotes about <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, the title was "Among the Moderate Chic at Barry Weiss's Book Party." The subhead is the embattled establishment gathers to celebrate the Times op-ed columnist book on anti-Semitism. So embattled establishment, I think, is the well. Premise. I'll tell you what. That's yeah. not. It's uh, moderate chic. That's what a dumb. <laughs> Stupid headline! Oh, look at it. it's a Tom Wolf reference. Um, no, but there were there were liberals, many liberals there. Like like not like eh, well, I don't know where I am at this point and what labels mean. Like actual liberals, including I guess we were supposed to have the who blew us off uh, a couple weeks ago, and maybe we're going to have on again. But so I won't reveal the name. Who? But, who? Um, we'll talk about it later. Talk about it later. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> no, is somebody now. Whatever. Well, let's let's turn to the book so we yeah. can actually talk about this a bit okay. before we have to let Barry go home. Um, Barry, I've I've read the book. I purchased two copies of the book. I want you to know that. God I'm bless you. I'm supporting your products. local bookstore, Amazon. Um, Amazon, of course. Yeah. The local bookstore. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. Actually, no, it's not true. I went to you live in Brooklyn for like yeah. something recently. That's true, but it's so much easier to buy books. I know, I know, but online. it's yeah, I also longer read conversation. All of the books but... electronically. Remember, yeah, so remember, it, remember Camille, it. that when Barry says this, it's it's true. They're wrong. She is a liberal. <laughs> she will get mad at you if you don't go to like Steve's Maoist bookstore on Prospect Park West. But I can't feel good about myself if Jeff Bezos isn't getting a cut of every dollar that yeah. I spend. I know. It's <laughs> very important. Yeah. Well, no, it's just I've now learned about the vagaries of the New York Times bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And oh. it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's like the amount that indie bookstore purchases are weighted yeah. as opposed to an amp. Do you know this? Of course you know uh, yeah, this. Yeah, I was totally yeah, ignorant yeah, about this. Yeah. I, I'm an idiot. I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meantime, my yeah. dad's just like buying like 20 on Amazon. Yeah. I'm like, no, dad, just like walk up the street to the bookstore. Yeah. Okay, anyway, sorry, go on. Book. Well, well, I yes. want to talk about this book. And it's one of those things where I think the premise of the book is pretty, pretty explicit. Like it's in the title, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. But this is a book that is effectively about the moment that we find ourselves in mm-hmm. this moment when there are, there is increasing extremism at both the left and the right. And it is creating all sorts of <laughs> bizarre undercurrents that you explore, particularly the manifestation of actual anti-Semitism, physical violence that's aimed at Jewish people and various other things in the culture that might be described as anti-Semitism. And you talk both about what's happening where it's happening, um, and what we can do about it. And I think it would be fascinating to have a conversation with you about this. But I wanted to start with just the introduction, where Mm -hmm. you talk about the massacre at Tree of Life and your connection to it. And uh, I'm specifically remembering the passage where you talk about 9-11 and how you felt on 9-11 and the description that you gave there, sort of driving past these lawns and seeing just how sort of tentative like everything that we come to expect is kind of our normal way of life, how how easily that can be disruptive mm-hmm. and how the tragedy made you think about that. And that is it's interesting because that's totally the experience I had on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I really hadn't I hadn't thought about it for a while. Yeah. I mean, I remember just really just to go back to 9-11 being in high school and I remember watching the second tower strike the building mm-hmm. and just had this sense like watching my the faces of my teachers and all these people look, that I looked up to just fall and see the terror on their faces. All these people that I thought were untouchable in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, I write in the book that I just remember driving home and seeing everything 
that I took for granted about the way that the orderliness, really, of our culture, the fact that everyone stops at lights and people mow their lawns. And my parents came home that day and, you know, to comfort me and my sisters. And that the line that separates that kind of civilization from chaos is very thin. And there are only like to really hold that in your mind is difficult. And there have only been a few moments in my life where I've really felt awake to that. Mm-hmm. One is 9-11. One was when I was near um, – when I was in Jerusalem during the Second Intifada. I was in Israel a lot of times during those two years, including for an entire year from – during the breakout of the Iraq War. Um, but I remember this one time in particular, I was near like a pipe bomb that went off too early. And I remember the, the the explosion and like crawling to the bus with these other kids. And like I had this feeling of like, oh, my God, you know, it, it was the, it was the same thing again. And then I felt that again um, after the massacre at Tree of Life, which, as I write in the book, is the synagogue where I became a bat mitzvah in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just the strange experience of going home and really, I mean, I grew up down the street from this place and right. seeing all of these places, including like the front lawns of people I know, having Anderson Cooper doing his his nightly show from the block where I grew up was just totally disorienting and a bizarre experience. But then, of course, and maybe you felt this way after 9-11, that the sort of heightened consciousness stays with you for a while and mm-hmm. then you sort of mm-hmm. fade back into normalcy. And yeah. it's really hard to cling to it because when you cling to it, there's something scary about it, but also that makes you feel just so much more alive to the world mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. much more grateful for what we have. And, you know, I could go on. It sounds cheesy, but it's true. Um so, yeah, I mean, I, I remember just very clearly the morning of October 27th, and it's strange. I was just in Pittsburgh last weekend, and everyone there refers to it, like the way we refer to 9-11. It's like mm-hmm. 10-27. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there to meet, to both speak and then meet with a bunch of survivors from that day, the children of people who were killed. Um, and I was in Arizona that morning, and I was set to give a speech the next day to big Jewish group. And I looked at my phone and, you know, the Weiss family has a very active family group text. And mm-hmm. I saw from my youngest sister a text that said there's a shooter, a tree of life. And I immediately went to thought of my dad because my dad is what we call a promiscuous Jew. He's like in, in he's in one synagogue or another every single Shabbat or Saturday morning. Um, and there are three different services that met in that building. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was quite likely that he could be there. And I just immediately wrote back, like, is dad there? I didn't even finish the question. Thank God he wasn't there. Um, But I remember my mom writing and saying, you know, we'll definitely know people. And my dad knew six or seven of the 11 people who were murdered that day. Um, I flew. I was supposed to go to Jerusalem, actually, the next day with my dad to do a reporting trip that I ended up doing months later on this really interesting archaeological dig called the City of David. Um, But I put that off and went back home for the week and just... Went to funerals, uh, went, spent time in the JCC, spent time talking to people, going to rallies, just bearing witness to what happens in the aftermath of one of these things. And it just, I mean, again, like right now it's hard to access that emotion. But the thing that I felt so strongly that week was this kind of nauseating sense that this has happened in so many other communities in this country And to me, like so many of us, those places are just like place names and you lose sight of like the individuals at the heart of it. And the problem and the the 
the epidemic of gun violence is so big that it's really hard to cling to any details. But in this case, it was easy for me to cling to the details because I knew who these people were. And I was standing at these funerals seeing everyone I'd known that I'd grown up with for my entire life. Um, So I I hope that that feeling of the immediacy of it on the stays with me. And I, I, you know, it has, I think that since that time, when I read about, you know, mass shootings, it affects me in a, just a really different way. Would this book have happened without that incident? I mean, that was, so this was, that was actually the motivating factor to write this book in particular. Yeah. I mean, you guys know me and anyone who's listening probably knows me a bit as, you know, a professional Jew in the sense that like I, I, you know, someone once called me, Jeff Goldberg was like, you're the chief rabbi of the New York times. And I, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's true. Uh, but I definitely, you know, my Jewish identity is just sort of at the forefront of who I am and it always has been. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, of course I had always thought about anti-Semitism. Of course, like I could tell you the details of what happened at the Sabaro Pizzeria bombing in Jerusalem. I could tell you exactly how, you know, the young French Moroccan Jew Ilan Halimi was tortured and murdered when I was a student in college. Like I was very alive um, to the problem of Jew hatred. And I went to Jewish day school and I studied Hebrew and I spent time in Israel and I went to Jewish summer camps like I was steeped in Jewish history and Jewish politics for my entire life. How how much of that, though, was personal experience versus, you know, I know you and I know, you know, that you consume Jewish history and history in general and 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 politics and, and particularly international politics. How much of this is I'm interested in Jew hatred as a thing because it's happening to me frequently when I'm young in college or even today? Well, it's funny. I was talking about this with someone earlier today. I was very much raised on the the idea, um, things to my parents, that, you know, for all of its flaws, that America was not just an exceptional nation, but was an exceptional nation for the Jews. Mm-hmm. And the reason that the Jewish diaspora experience in this country was such a fundamental departure from history was not a coincidence. It had to do with, and there's no time to get into this deeply, but if people are interested, there's a writer, Mayor Soloveitchik, who writes really beautifully about this. Um about the founders' understanding of themselves as new Israelites enacting a kind of modern-day exodus. Benjamin Franklin wanted to put Moses crossing the Red Sea on the seal of the country. Yeah, you recount some of this in the book Yeah, I recount some of this in the book, and I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, though, one of the downsides, if I can say that, about being raised in this sense that we were um, a diaspora apart was that, in a way, I was— not sleepwalking through history, that's putting it a little too strongly, but things that happened to me. So for example, I would wait for the school bus with my second of my, my one younger sister. Um, and I remember this Catholic school bus would drive by and they would scream like kikes and dirty Jews. And then I remember another incident, people asking me about horns or picking up a penny, all of these, you know, things. And then college was a different story. That was kind of anti-Semitism cloaked as anti-Zionism, which I'm sure we'll get into. But when those things happened to me, I just was had such a faith in the fundamental goodness, I think, of this country that I and maybe this is a good thing. I sloughed those things off as just exceptional and not actually representative of anything deeper. I mean, it's, it strikes me as right, primarily because just thinking about it now, the U.S. might be one of those few countries that hasn't had a moment in its brief history 
the, of Jews desperately trying to leave. And even when you look today mm-hmm. at a country mm-hmm. that I lived in, in Sweden, I mean, oh there's God. people like, we have to get out of here, we're going to Israel, and this happens quite frequently. There is, of course, a, a number of people who make Ali and go to, go to Israel from the U.S., but they don't do so necessarily because out of fleeing. A, fleeing, right? I mean, you think of Russia, you think of Germany, you think of all across the Middle East. Of course, everyone forgets about the Jewish diaspora in the Middle East. Um, you know, there's always a story, right? In like the New York Times, it's like the last, the last Jew, Jew of Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan. How many times has he been profiled? Yeah, he's just like, all right. <laughs> but it's like no you know, one, gonna, sto- no one stopped to convert. ask him. Like, yeah. There are 20 Jews in Egypt. Yeah, yeah Like there yeah. are five Jews in Iraq. Like yeah, these places right. used to be hubs of Jewish civilization. Yeah. So that's, in that, those migrations, but, but, yeah, it's, it, this is a, an incredible place for, for, you know, as you said, for its faults. And one of the things to, to point out when I remember the same thing from growing up, the penny jokes, the like the slurs and the rest of it. I don't suspect any of those people, not a single one of them, a bunch of whom I can think of now, um, grew up to be anti-Semites. And most of them actually probably grew up to marry Jews. Um, I can think of two in particular that <laughs> probably, you know. yeah, that I know. Because I mean, I, I grew up in a town that had a, had a, you know, relatively big Jewish population. But, you know, that kind of language when you're young, it's, it's, it's only when it becomes something much greater later. I mean, I see it in, you know, we, you can't talk about this stuff when you go to Germany because it, it steps across another line. There's a lot of anti-Semitism coming back to Germany. Good God, I thought we eradicated this in the denazification pro- project after 1945. It's like, oh, but it's different and we can't talk about why it's different. And everybody knows why it's different because there's an Im- this imported kind of ideology is coming into all these places in Europe. And we just haven't really had that problem on a mass scale here, mm-hmm. um, which kind of changes the way you think about these things. Right. I mean, like, you know, the animating sin of America is slavery. It's not Jew hatred in the way that it is in Europe. It's just it's just fundamentally different. And so I always thought that that anti-Semitism was something that happened obviously to Jews of other times, but also just of other places. I thought, and honestly, in a sort of condescending way, mm. that, you know, the Jews of France, you know, are are idiots to think that there's a future for Jews in Europe. Same with the Jews of, you know, Sweden or anywhere else. And we were different here. Um, I, I haven't totally departed from that view. I still do think it is different here. And it, even given the past two years, I, of course, still believe that we are the Jewish diaspora of America is the luckiest diaspora ever. And a huge part of that has to do with the establishment of the state of Israel. But a lot of it has to do with fundamental differences about America, about the protection of religious liberty here, about our history, about the founders and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd be lying if I didn't say that I wasn't sort of asking myself some uncomfortable questions that I never asked before. Um, But, yeah, I, I very much, you know, I just found myself unable to look away from this topic after Tree of Life. And then it was just reinforced after the attack six months later to the day at the synagogue in San Diego in Poway, um, where one woman whose daughter I'd become close to, Lori Gilbert Kay, was murdered. Hmm. Um, you know, same motivation, white supremacist, similar kind of things that he was saying about the way that the Jews are sort of the greatest trick the devil has ever played, helping bring dirty Muslims into this country and, you know, being loyal to black people. Wait, the, and ar- the people argument and so is that, that, that Jews are bringing Muslims into the yes, country? Yes, yeah. very that's much. That's the argument in Europe, too. That's, uh, yeah. that's something else. Oh, well, yeah, but, I, I, but that, yeah. Is, that, that was the thing. Incredible. Like, I felt like an idiot after um, after the, the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville. I remember watching 
that footage and reading about it. And, you know, they were shouting, Jews will not not replace replace us. us. And I heard it in like the very plain meaning of that language, Mm -hmm. which is to say, like, the Jewish guy's not going to take my place in the corner office or whatever. Right. But in fact, it was like much more conspiratorial, much more anti-Semitic in that sense, which is like the idea is that the Jew in the white supremacist worldview appears to be white. uh, But in fact, the Jew is anything but white. The Jew is um, is is the, the devil because he can appear to be white but isn't. And it is, in fact, loyal to these other groups, uh, groups that are ruining the white American Christian nature of this country, which yeah. is, of course, a lie about what America is itself. But anyway. I have some I have some questions for you that I I developed as I was reading the book. I I don't know that they're criticisms, but there's certainly things that I had challenges with as I was reading it. But before we get to that, one thing that occurred to me as I was reading is just the degree to which anti-Semitism is a uniquely virulent kind of conspiracy theory Mm -hmm. that has persisted across time and place and has metastasized and sort of had these flare ups at different points in time. And, that persistence is something that really does seem to be very unique mm-hmm. and the particular characteristics of it every time it manifests itself mm-hmm. um, are sort of surprising in their similarities. The the jeering that you got from those kids on the on the Catholic school bus in Moynihan that you alluded to the people it's also being the aware bus stop of too, that I remember. It, the, really? Yeah. The yeah. fact I remember the kid, Max, in particular, who was yeah. the target. Yeah. But oh it's but it's yeah. bizarre that Weird. these things have this sort of currency and that they travel as as well as they do. It's so much to go into, but but the way I think about it is that anti Semitism and again, the, even even the language of anti-Semitism, there's no such thing as Semitism. There's no such thing as Semites. You know, th- this is like a, a construct. So I, it's more useful in a way to talk about it as anti-Judaism, anti-Jewish civilization. Mm-hmm. The reason I don't use that language in the book is I just want to be like completely understood yes. by people. Yeah. Um, but it's baked into the very scaffolding of Western civilization. Like I full stop completely believe that. And the person that convinced me of it is this uh, scholar at the University of Chicago named David Nirenberg, who's written this book called Anti-Judaism, which is dense but brilliant. I really recommend it to people. Um, And his idea, and it's traced back even before Jesus, right? Like that's the most obvious instance of sort of the original um, conspiracy about the Jews, which is that the Jews, this wily, tiny minority with proximity to power— got the Roman Empire, then the strongest force in the world, to do their bidding Mm -hmm. by killing the Son of God. Uh, And so much obviously flows from that and flows from that infamous line in Matthew, his blood be on us and on our children, which was only reversed by Vatican II in like the 50s. Um, I hope I got that right. I think I did. Sounds about right. Yeah. But we're not history buffs. No, but it's (laughs) kind of unbelievable, like how much damage was done because of that line and because of that story. Um, But if you, you know, if you look and I was so surprised by this because I was always raised with the notion that it sort of all started there. But Mm -hmm. it actually goes much deeper, older, beyond that, uh, which is there's this story like in 300 BCE in Egypt around the time when the Jewish community in Alexandria was the biggest Jewish community in the world. Of course, there are no Jews in Alexandria today. um, That this pagan priest named Mantio, I believe his name is, I might be getting that wrong. I think I'm right. uh, 
derive this sort of revisionist history of the Jewish story of the Exodus from Egypt. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the Jewish story of the Exodus from Egypt upended everything that was then sacred in Egyptian society. They believed in worshiping idols. The Jewish story said that there was one single God that was invisible. Uh, They believed in slavery being something that was acceptable and even just. The Jewish story believed in freeing the Israelite slaves. And so it's this it's sort of like this original revisionist conspiracy about that story, which in and of itself represents what I think the Jews often represent in a society, which is freedom which is the freedom to think differently, to be different. And in a sense, when you look at history, there's this theme that runs through it. And the person who really helped me see this more than anyone is our friend Alana Newhouse, who edits Tablet, Mm -hmm. is that Jews in a way have always been perpendicular to their surrounding society. And that is just a very uncomfortable thing for a surrounding society. And I think one of the reasons uh, that we've had the history that we've had. And that is also why... I think that societies that are most free, Mm -hmm. America being the key example, societies that protect liberty and protect the ability to be different and that judge people based on their individual merit and not based on other qualities are societies where Jews flourish the most. That is also why I don't think it's a coincidence that we flourish here and and not in places that don't protect freedom. To to something you said um, earlier is that, you know, it is this this thing of the, the sort of whiteness of Jews, because if you look in particular, right the, now it's hinging on whiteness, and in, in, in particular in the, the sort of most aggressive modern example of eliminationist, to use Daniel Goldhagen's term, uh, anti-Semitism, is obviously Nazi Germany, and the problem was integration. Mm-hmm. That was the, the the difficulty. First, people who were left alone, if they earned an Iron Cross in the First World War, mm-hmm. because they did something on behalf of the the country that was stabbed in the back by the Jews after after um, the Treaty of Versailles. But the funny thing is, if you look at the propaganda of the time, it's it's the, the, the idea of the mask. Is There's a, yes. a film from 1937, I think, called Juden ohne, Juden ohne Maske, like Jews without masks. Oh my like God. Taking their masks up. I've never seen this. It's, like, it's a short film. It's like 15, 20 minutes long. And then I think it's like mid, late 30s, 36, 37. 1937, and it's 36 oh. minutes long. 36 minutes long. Yes. Wow, not bad. Uh, I'm doing okay. <laughs> he always uh, impresses himself. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> nobody else is going to be impressed. Um, it so, should be known that Michael's column for me at Tablet was called The Righteous Gentile. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Proving yeah. himself yet again. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and then, and then the most famous uh, anti-Semitic film is this film called Yud Seuss. Yeah. and and I was, watched that this year. It's funny because there's a guy named Werner Krauss who plays multiple characters. It's like the anti-Semitic version of the Clumps. He's playing like <laughs> he's playing like the rabbi, and then he plays the. And it's funny because it was at, he was actually investigated and looked into by the propaganda ministry because he quote unquote played the Jew so well. He must be one of those guys with the mask. But in that film, the point of it is. You have a guy with, he's got the payas at one point, but there's this scene in the film where he gets, it, it all goes away mm-hmm. and he blends into German society. And it's always funny. People say, that's a very Jewish name. 
What does that mean? If somebody's called Rosenberg, that's a very Jewish name, right? Well, no, the main ideological scumbag of Nazi Germany was a guy named Alfred Rosenberg. It just means a mountain of roses, Rosenberg. And Jews took the names of the countries they were in at the time. And of course, some of them became more Jewish than others. People say, oh, it's a, that's a Jewish name. It's a Polish name, right? And that was the problem always. Was that whiteness as a, as a white person, you can, you're not really a minority, you can integrate into society. And that ends up being the problem for these people. You know, the, the, one would expect and hope that like the great thing is then when Jews do integrate and keep their own traditions and the rest of it, but it's, it's, you know, America's done a, a decent job of this, but it's crazy to me that, you know, that is always the thing. It's the mask. Yes. Yes. And it has, you know, it's, to me, it's come very clear that we basically Jews in America are facing two threats. In Europe, it's a different story. But right now we are facing the physical, the threat of physical violence by white supremacists who want to kill us. Um, literally yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before? There was this FBI Colorado, plot yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. Um, it's constant. I mean, this, you know. Colorado it, was a famous place where a, a Jewish radio host, uh, I think his name is Marty Berg or something. Berg was his last name. Yeah. Who was shot in, in the early 80s. By like this, the Christian identity. Yeah, exactly. Or exactly. This, and, and, and he was shot in his driveway mm -hmm. because he would make fun of these people in his radio show. And, yeah. the, and that was in Colorado. Yeah, these people are scary. Yeah. These people scared me. Um, and, you know, I'm just, so, so that's, that's the one thread is the sort of, physical threat by white supremacists. But the other threat is what is coming out of the far left, and that is the effort to transform Jews into white supremacists or as the handmaidens of white supremacists. And they do this by linking Jew American Jews, 95% um, of whom identify as pro-Israel or Zionist, by the way. It's like a totally normative thing, not normative on Twitter, completely normative in our community, um, as being the supporters of this, what they say about Israel, which is that it's the last standing bastion of white colonialism. So Jews, in a way, are up, up helping hold up this white supremacist project. Now, of course, it relies on telling like 10 different lies about Israel, one of which is that, you know, the majority of Jews in Israel, to use their language, are Jews of color. They're 54% of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. Oh, I wonder why they're there, because they had to flee all these other countries we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but that is sort of this really uncomfortable um, two-pronged threat that Jews are facing. One is this threat from outside, which is white supremacists, and the other is, frankly, a threat from within, because 75% of American Jews vote for Democrats, the overwhelming majority of American Jews identify as liberals and progressives. And what happens if people that you saw as sort of being your comrades, being inside of your own tent, are now insisting that actually you should be on the other side? I, it's, it's, a it's a crazy thing, too, because you see this uh, happening, particularly in the 60s, right? So you have particularly in the far left radical groups in Europe who end up at PFLP, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, forgotten about organization run by a complete psycho named George Habash. And they would have these training camps. I mean, the Ulrika Meinhof of the Bader Meinhof gang's daughter was, was, being, was stopped being taken and raised in these camps. And the funny thing about it is that is that they, the entire project was based on one thing, was to fight our parents' generation so it would never happen again of Nazism. And then you have that moment at Entebbe. And they have a guy from one of these Badermeinhof affiliated groups. And it's, it, it, the most amazing thing about it, his name is Wilfred Böse. And the name Böse in German means evil. So Wilfred Böse is part of this group at Entebbe who is separating Jews on the plane 
And these these are the radical. You should give like a two set sentence gloss on what happened in Entebbe. Yeah, and and Entebbe, well, actually, where Benjamin Netanyahu's brother was killed, actually in the raid in Entebbe, it was basically a hijacked plane, uh, and by Palestinian, a, a half band of Palestinian uh, 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 terrorists and and German and and European terrorists, and um, at one point during this thing, they separated the Jews, which is just what their parents did, and they were claimed they were fighting against. And if you there's a a, a book. Uh, by the former editor of Der Spiegel named Stefan Aust, who wrote a book uh, that became a film called The Bader Meinhof Complex. It's so good. It's a great great film. Great film. And there's one little line in that that people don't often notice, is that there is a transaction in a pub in Berlin, which was a neo-Nazi haunt, and it was a neo-Nazi hangout, and that's where the Bader Meinhof went at one point for one particular operation to buy weapons. So they're buying weapons from neo-Nazis and that overlap of, of anti-imperialism and Israel is an Im- Im- imperial state. And you see that when I lived in Germany, when I lived in, Germany, I lived in uh, Sweden, I was baffled by how every day there was 95 articles in the newspaper about Israel. Constant, constantly. It was absolutely like, what is the, there's like nine Jews in the country and I know all of them. <laughs> I'm like, hey, Haim. And he's like, did you read the paper today? I'm like, I know, it's crazy. And like, this I is, like how he is a New York actor. Yeah, I know. Of course. Of course. He's not Swedish. They don't like, he's like, I've given up on these people. I talk like Bernie now. But, it, you know, this is like this obsession. And I, at first I was like, oh, they're obsessed with Jews in this very unhealthy way. And then I realized it was, it, it, it came from the 68ers who basically set the the kind of, um, you know, basically what people reported on, everybody was an old 68 or half the people in Sweden who were editors were former Maoists, like legitimately former Maoists. And it was the old anti-imperialist instinct. It was like the, the, the great imperial project that is that has to be destroyed now is Israel. And that is so unbelievably common. And now you have this incredible mix of those people and recent immigrants who uh, a lot of whom have uh, uh, rather, shall we say, negative uh, views of Israel and Jews. So that together is an incredible and, uh, and women and gays. Yeah, well, that too. But but you know, I mean, who's counting at this point? <laughs> <laughs> what can I? I can make a joke about that. Of who's course. Yeah, right, okay, I think, fine. I think the point you're making though highlights one of the. It's things. what sustained us as a people. I, I love you. <laughs> I think the point How you're making you one and actually underscores one of the questions that I have because I've got a couple of things that I'm uniquely sensitive to um Mm. and by uniquely i don't mean unique as compared to other people i just mean in general me personally and it's particularism like only happens here it only happens to these people and over concern Uh, it's the capacity to see something that might be a real problem and to perhaps inflate the Mm. scope of that problem it's it's the root of all sort of moral moral panics um and both of those things concern me because they can take what is a real problem with very real roots and real consequences and perhaps obscure some of the underlying things that are going on. And one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading the book was the difficulty of sort of attaching the label of anti-Semitism to various sort of categories of activity or disagreement. Mm -hmm. And there's something early on where you talk about sort of the foreign policy, um, establishment or at least established values with respect to foreign policy, the consensus that it's existed with respect to support for NATO and America's sort of steadfastness as an ally of the U.S. And you contrast that with the growing popularity or at least influence of characters like Rand Paul and Tulsi Gabbard, 
who I believe... We should not talk too much about Tulsi Gabbard because her fans are crazy. Uh, well, well, I believe you refer to them as neo-isolationists mm-hmm. in, in um, the book. And it stood out to me because from a foreign policy standpoint, my own foreign policy tends to be very much in line with theirs. Mm-hmm. And what stands out to me is that I would never refer to myself as a neo-isolationist. I'm How non- would you refer to yourself? I'm a non-interventionist. And the he's reasons black, he's black Murray Rothbard. <laughs> yeah. What is the difference? I'm not black. Um, well, well, I think there's a pretty consequential difference. Like my goal isn't to isolate the United States from from getting involved in foreign entanglements. My goal, just for the purpose of being isolated, my goal is not to intervene in outside things that might actually create circumstances where the United States is a potentially making problems worse in various other places by. When have we ever done that? Unintended consequences. <laughs> um, oh, I mean, that, that happens on occasion. Um, I'm aware. I'm aware. But, but also to just be sensitive to the fact that once you develop these relationships with other countries where you're sort of committed to their causes no matter what, you can often end up in circumstances where you have to excuse their bad behavior, where you have to say with the Saudis are engaged in some conflict someplace and you're selling them weaponry despite the fact that they are precipitated in a humanitarian crisis. You lose the ability to mm. be critical of your allies under certain circumstances. And I think it's terribly important for us to, one, be able to identify that there is sort of a difference between like legitimate criticism of, say, foreign policy and actually being someone who's an anti-Semite. There's a oh profound my God. Oh, yeah, distance no, no, no. between those two. And I, Just to be I know like you super know, clear, no, like, I don't I say in the book that. that people that support Rand Paul or Tulsi Gabbard yeah. or Bernie or whoever who wants, you know, America to pull back from the world or, sorry, not intervene in the world, mm-hmm. I don't think that's anti-Semitic at all. I include that in the book only to say that things are shifting rapidly. Mm-hmm. And that worldview is part, I think, of a resurgent populism on the right and the left. And populist movements just tend to be something that doesn't turn out well for the Jews. But that has nothing to do with anyone's you know, ability to criticize anything about foreign policy, including Israeli policy. I mean, that, yeah, I just want to be like super clear mm-hmm. that like nowhere in the book do I say that yeah, that yeah. is anti-Semitic at all. No, I think I've found in different instances there will be criticism of Israeli policy that sometimes will be characterized and not not by you and not in the book as anti-Semitic. And can you give. OK, so I hear this all yeah. the time. And I one of the criticisms I get a lot is that. I am simply trying to suppress criticism of Israel Mm -hmm. by smearing anyone who dares to criticize Israeli government policy as an Mm anti-Semite. I feel like Judith Butler put that in her very articulate, I have to say, review of my book in Jewish Currents. It's very rare for Judith Butler. It was very clear. I mean, it was quite amazing. I understood it. Yeah, yeah. Um, But she accuses me of that. And Mm -hmm. I, I just feel like... That's a straw man. What I see more often than not mm-hmm. is anti-Semites posing as critics of Israel. I see that as a much more common occurrence. And maybe I'm just looking at the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, what are examples of people criticizing Israel that get smeared as anti-Semitic? Would you not say that there is generally a perception of, like, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement as being broadly 
anti-Semitic. I think it is anti-Semitic. Right. So if someone but were to sign not, up, but mm-hmm. if someone were to support that because they thought Israeli policy is bad and I, as a consequence, am interested in the BDS movement. Yes. Anyone who has an interest in that isn't necessarily 100 percent. I think the vast majority of people Mm -hmm. who sign on to the BDS movement have no idea what it's really about. They think and and honestly, like the New York Times has even printed this in our news articles about what BDS is quite inaccurately Mm -hmm. um, that BDS and I believe many people who support it think it's about ending the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. Mm -hmm. That is not an anti-Semitic policy. To support. I support that. You know, I hope for a just two state solution between Israelis and Palestinians. But what BDS actually is, is not that. That is a Western liberal fantasy of what BDS is. BDS is an eliminationist movement that does not want any Jewish state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, you can say Israel should have never been created. Uh, You know, to be I write in the book that like to be an anti-Zionist in 1920s Poland, Mm -hmm. where Jews and Jews were trying to come up with a solution to this persistent problem that they had, which is they were getting killed a lot. And there was you know, (laughs) 2000 years of it. Um, Lots of people had lots of different ideas about the right way to solve that problem. It just so happens that Theodore Herzl's idea was the one that actually saved Jewish lives, not even the Jewish lives of Europe, the Jewish lives of people in the Arab world. It tends to be a difference that matters. But but my point my point is that to be an anti-Zionist before the creation of the state of Israel, I think is just a different moral universe than to be an anti-Zionist today. Mm-hmm. Because to be an anti-Zionist today, it's like... It sounds like so theoretical, but it's actually to be against the largest Jewish population on planet Earth. Because what do people imagine happens? Like, do they ima- do they imagine that, like, the Jews are just going to kind of go back to Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and, you know, Berlin and Vilna and, and Poland? Like, I, I don't understand it because mm-hmm. you have to be honest about the history of the Middle East and the current reality in the Middle East. And the current reality in the Middle East is if you are a minority and you do not have the protection of an army, you get killed or eliminated, period. That's just, you talk to the Yazidis or the Zoroastrians or the Kurds or even the Christians. I mean, that's just true. And so a lot of times I find that people try and dress up this idea of anti-Zionism as like, we just want a binational state. It sounds lovely. But in reality, how would that be anything less than another genocide against the Jewish people? I just don't see it going down any other way. And I feel like a lot of times anti-Zionists are able to go around like making this case that sounds so kumbaya Mm -hmm. And it's just not real. But even there, that's a difference of perspective about the likely outcome given some sort of geopolitical changes and would, again, not be something that ought to be construed as anti-Semitism. Like if someone is, is fundamentally opposed to the current policies of the Israeli state and Mm -hmm. if they are in a sort of broad way. And this is not my own position I'm describing, although I have in the past advocated for a, a, an infinite state solution because my politics are ridiculous and radical. And What's extreme. an infinite state solution? <laughs> I mean, anarcho-capitalist paradise. Like a one, yeah. one I'm, a, state I'm a goofy person. I got it. But, but that, yeah, one for like each person. Like an anarchist. Person. Yeah. 
Fine, that's the loophole. Um, Totally get it. But in but in if you're but if you're calling for for the dissolution of only one state of all the states, Uh I'm going to be suspicious of that, especially when that one state contains the most persecuted people in the history of the universe. Which I'm which I'm generally I'm generally fine with that. I'm fine with the suspicion, but I I suppose that's what I was trying to draw a distinction between. I think there is a distinction between criticism of national policy in one context Mm -hmm. and a more specific problem of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic crime or anti-Semitic violence, mm-hmm. I which mean, I, th- I think there's a point that you you already can see that there is a difference between the two. But in particular instances, you take issue with advocacy for a policy that you think is simply not feasible. A very, very brief aside here is that people often t- talk about, you know, this kind of cancel culture and what's going on in universities. Mm-hmm. And people who point it out, they say, you know, you're just taking these examples and blowing them up. And you say, well, no, I mean, there's organizations like FIRE that exist because of these things. Mm-hmm. I think that is actually the case oftentimes with people do. There are people who say things are anti-Semitic that aren't anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. But it is more often the case that I hear about those things than anything else. The second some, you know, guy like Dennis Prager, I'm not picking on him, I don't know anything about him, but I'm just, there's the first name that popped in my head, says something that, you know, well, and, and this does actually happen, but it, I, I just don't see the examples as much as I hear the complaint. The complaint that, oh, it's just, I mean, we're just criticizing Israeli policy or something like that, and you're calling us anti-Semites. Yes, of course that happens, because there are crazy people in the world, and there are people who, you know, want to punch people in the eye and make a talk radio show or write a, write a bad column. But I just wonder how often it happens, because I, 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 when it does happen, I hear about it ad infinitum. And I just, I, the difference between it happens happening mm-hmm. uh, a couple of times and it being kind of de rigueur that people are always accusing uh, critics of Israel of anti-Semitism. I just don't see that so much. I, I'm willing to be persuaded on it. But also there are people who have very loud voices who are, you know, opposed to the very existence of the state of Israel who also happen to be anti-Semites. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a very problematic thing sometimes too. I actually did speak with Greg Lukianoff of FIRE about this particular issue because I was skeptical mm-hmm. about it as well. I was like, is this is there really a, a lot of this as much as like, say, a Glenn Greenwald would say that there's a lot of pro-Palestinian. Big anti- Barry fan. Anti- <laughs> <laughs> yes, Glenn, of course. Not, we're not talking about Greg. Hi, Glenn. Hope you're listening. <laughs> but anyway, uh, according to Glenn Lukianoff, he's like, yeah, there's, more, there's a lot more than you'd think. Yeah. A lot more of what? There's a lot, uh, like people being, you know, like at George Washington University hanging a Palestinian flag in their uh, window and having that be taken down by the administration as being hostile to the Jewish community. Well, look, I mean, that that kind of stuff is completely... That's ridiculous. But it's completely natural. It's a natural uh, outgrowth of all of these sorts of policies. I mean, when you cover one of these stupidities, you have to cover them all. Mm -hmm. And and why... So so often, when you give people a weapon, they, they tend to use it, particularly if they're 18, 19, 20 years old. And pr- to protect their little, you know, fiefdom of bad ideas. And yeah, I've seen I've seen that happen. And, you know, we can turn that to Barry because it, it it's in the end of your book. You talk about it. And I've had it said to me about you. And just so you know, 
I hope I you never are. defend you. I say <laughs> I've met her. You throw me over. I'm like I don't. On I'm, your way to the top, you're yes. crawling over my cold body. <laughs> that is right. That is absolutely right. I'm like, I know you. Oh yeah, of course. I'm a coward. I mean, I know any, you are. But a, I love you. You love me because I'm a coward. <laughs> but the, the no, thing, you have moments of bravery. A, a few. You do. I'm getting closer to it. Good. And then you know when I get some I keep money, getting I'll ready be, for your big coming out party. It's, it's gonna happen. It's called the fifth column, and it's available to anyone with an internet connection. So know, somehow you've sort of yeah, you know, well, dancing on the edge of a knife. Well, still, I'm impressed because people know that I'm reasonable. And 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 do they? And, well, I don't reason know. doesn't really matter. They anymore. don't care. But anymore. what do people nope. say? No, the, the, what's, the, the, what's the horrible negative thing about me? You're about well, to say. You know, because you address it in the book. Is that you? Do you know that Barry cares about free speech only when it comes to her types of viewpoints? Because she tried to shut professors up when she was at Columbia and tried to shut them down. And I've even, heard this a lot. I've heard this a lot. So talk about that well, a little I, bit. I just you know find this, it. Right? Of course, I know it. I just find it amazing that basically we were a group of four students, and somehow in this narrative, four students had more power. Like it almost is conspiratorial, like somehow four students who were raising concerns about what I would now definitely call anti-Semitism, certain professors, but then def- did not have the courage or the confidence to say mm. that that's what it was, um, that somehow we had more power than the entire structure of the university. I mean, these were tenured professors. I was a 20-year-old student. But what about the instinct, though? I mean, isn't that the complaint, that the instinct is that you heard something that you disagreed with and you were trying to get them thrown out of the university? I was trying to criticize them. There were two parts. One, I was trying to criticize them and expose the things that they said, things that if they were said about any other minority group would have literally caused a all-student strike on campus. I mean, things like, can you pull up... Hamid Debashi, skeletal structure. Just Google that. That's, he has it. It's his homepage. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> it's it's yeah. that and drugs. Or the, or yeah. the Z- or Hamid Debashi laughing hyenas, mm-hmm. Jews. That probably, that's, I think I know where that one's going. I think there's, there's a, there's so, a, so sorry. So that oh, was God. one part of it. And the second part of yeah, it. I got this. LiveScience.com. Is that? Oh no. Oh God. Yeah. Is that what it is? Half a century of systemic maiming. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's, that, a lot, there's a lot going on here. Go do, oh. do half a century of systemic maiming. Um, anyway, I you had, some te- you had some people over at the teachers college at Columbia that did some recent maiming with some bombs from the weather. So, <laughs> so, 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 so that was one point trying to expose what these people said. The other point, and you know, there was a whole, not to get into it. There was a whole like university investigation into whether or not this happened is that in an environment, I don't need to tell you guys this in an environment of intellectual orthodoxy and the environment at in the Middle East Studies Department of Columbia was Zionism is racism. Straight up. Like mm-hmm. it was like the Soviet propaganda line. Well, okay, if you have an environment where all these professors in this department think that Zionism is racism and tell you that, guess what? The Zionists in their class are gonna be treated as racist. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that a lot of students said at the time was happening, um, I didn't experience this myself, was that they were sort of getting bullied and they were, you know, there were all these instances of what they regarded as bullying in the classroom and of professors saying things like, if you deny that there was, you know, a massacre in Janine, get out of my classroom, things like that. Um, At the time, a lot of people, including in the sort of Jewish establishment community, were like, "Eh, it's Columbia. Right. Like it's known for its political excesses. You guys are kind of blowing things out of proportion. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Uh What 
has proven to be the case, I think, tragically, is that the thing that was at the time a national news story because it seemed so crazy and exceptional has now become the norm at college campuses across the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking now about the alleged bullying in the classroom, but the norm that Zionism is racism, the idea that BDS and believing that only one state in the world doesn't have a right to exist, these have become like planks of normative progressivism. If you're if you're an 18 year old college student and you go to the activities fair in the first week, you're signing up for legalizing marijuana, raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, fighting for better rights for the janitors and cafeteria staff. Oh, and by the way, BDS. And like that kid's not an anti-Semite. It's just like that worldview has been extremely successful. And I'm working. I I, I just. You know, I'm super into this right now because I hear from these college students every single day, some of whom, um, some of whose experience, one of them, I'm working on a big op-ed with him, um, but a lot of their experiences are encapsulated in this thing that was just published today by The Forward. And it's this really bracing thing where there was a survey that just came out a few weeks ago that was shocking to me that talks about like one in four American Jews hide some aspect of their Judaism, either physically like hiding their ne- their Jewish star necklace, not wearing a yarmulke in public or closeting themselves about their views for Israel. And the forward went and just interviewed lots of people about this. And it's amazing. There's one woman in it. This woman, Sarah, they don't give her last name where she's like, I bought Barry Weiss's book and I was about to read it on the subway and then I got scared and put the book away. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's all of these instances of the way and the how anti-Semitism functions in progressive spaces mm-hmm. and the lie that this is just a political difference falls apart when you hear what people's experience is in spaces where they're identifying as a Jew and the predominant worldview is an anti-Israel worldview. They're singled out and bullied and, you know, called white supremacists and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. They're just marginalized in increasingly stark ways. And that's something that I'm hearing from from students across the country. Address quickly, just um, uh, before I I let Camille take this one because <laughs> i know he's like he's like i you know over there like slobbering i love it you know he's he's no, carving he a picture great. of ron paul on his arm like, relax. relax no one can see it it's a fucking podcast no one can see the picture of ron paul that you're drawing in your own blood stop it would you just yeah. go on yeah okay god uh, but to the glen the greenwald uh glenn greenwald type point in this thing that comes up you know, respond to that that the charge though that that you are trying to squelch the free speech of people that you disagree with. That's that tends to be the charge. I'm trying right? to expose the bigotry. But were you calling for them to be fired at the time when you're in college? No. Yeah. I mean, there was one professor. They all had tenure. They all had yeah. tenure except this one professor, Joseph Massad, who ended up getting tenure the next year. <laughs> uh, Thanks, Barry. But 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 actually no. But like, let's take that up. Do I think? A person who is an anti-Semite deserves tenure at an American university like Columbia? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Mm. No. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that I wouldn't sign on to try to get someone fired if I thought that they had sort of sufficiently repugnant views. Well, particularly like particularly the student thing when you're yeah. when you're haranguing and mow mowing students and saying you can't have those views. Uh-huh. That's not what the university is about or what it should be about. And it's also pretty common. And I know, like even myself, a long time ago. Um, didn't wasn't comfortable saying mm-hmm. a lot of things on, on campus that were pretty, you know, when you go into the society at large, they're pretty, pretty boring and mainstream. And and I think, you know, it's, like what, what would oh. I have been happy if Joseph Massad didn't get tenure? 
obviously. Like, but again, like, I was a student writing op-eds in the paper, and somehow the way this story, the way this story has gotten told, it's as if I had like the the elders of Zion lined up behind me, waging this war against a few professors. Uh, it's also pretty crazy to me that when you gain a certain level of notoriety and people are, you know, angry about your views, that they go picking through your trash. Well, well the problem. Right, I, mean, <laughs> like, I mean, what I did when I was 20 years old. Well, part good of the God. Well, part of the problem is that, like, I don't remember every single detail of this, but other people have surfaced every single thing that I've said and written. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I'm sure someone can. Fisk this entire conversation too, and I look forward to that on Twitter. Wow, what a two thousands reference! That Thank was. you. Fisk. Um, I always was a fan of it. <laughs> Sounds like something else. Uh, but I don't know. Like, do I think it's a do I think it's wrong for a student activist to say that an anti semite shouldn't be a professor at a Ivy League school? Like, why is that not okay to say that? It ought to be okay to say. Yeah, that. absolutely. I mean, it, to the extent we're talking about protected speech and, it, and the ability to have debates, then certainly making a claim of that sort is, impro- is appropriate. I think when people talk about sort of the, the, the panic on campuses, and I have mixed feelings about this. I am an ardent free speech supporter. I often worry that we overstate the nature of that crisis on campus mm-hmm. with respect to kids. Um, who are behaving badly and not allowing people with uh, unacceptable views, so to quote unquote, to to be on campus and to exist in the same space as us. I, I worry that we overstate that problem, but I, I don't think it's completely unacceptable to use shame as a weapon when there is someone who is doing something that they ought to be embarrassed about that you think is inconsistent with the values of the university or just you personally or the country at large. And you speak out and you and you try to bring attention to that. You try to bring light to that um, and you try to engage in sort of debate in that way. That seems totally fair and reasonable to me. And I'm not certain that's an act of hypocrisy. On the well, university, no, tell, convince Chris, me that I am. I mean, maybe I am a hypocrite on this. I, I can't make that. Case. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I it, feel like you've really read the Glenn Greenwald. No, 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 no. It's not trying to avoid it. No, no, that's not, like I am. When I ask you about the details of it, is because I honestly don't really know. But I've heard it come up, mm-hmm. and I've heard it come up with people who've said that to me too. In particular, when when I said, "Oh, Barry Weiss," and like, "Oh, she's a hypocrite because of this this thing," and it's clearly they read the Intercept, right? And the, the first thing I'll say is that on the university. I get, I get the instinct to say that you know some of this stuff is overstated. I don't really think it is. The more you look at it, um, but one thing that is, I think, indisputable. And I came across this last week as a friend of mine who I wrote a recommendation for. She went back to grad school. She's at NYU. And she's taking a class on um, imperialism or colonialism. Um, she says class on colonialism. And she said, I, I have, to, I have to write a paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I trust you on this thing. I'm going to send you the syllabus. You tell me what you think I should write about. And um, the most coherent book on the list that I said, I can actually talk to you about this and talk you through it was Franz Fanon. Mm-hmm. Because the rest of it, I mean, it's a political monoculture. Yeah, 100%. And it is so crazy to see that, holy cow, there is not a single dissenting view uh, from this professor's idea Mm -hmm. of colonialism. And, of course, it's all this sort of, 
you know, incoherent nonsense from, you know, magazines like, or, or academic journals like Social Text and the rest of it. And it's, in, I have no, like, the, even the titles of the things, you, you, you fall mm-hmm. asleep reading them. But I, to, to the extent it is. That stuff is true. But to the extent it is overstated, I think there's a, po- a couple of ways it could be. One way that it's often presented is that this is predominantly a problem on the left. Um, and there is ample evidence that it is a problem on sort of, quote, both sides, um, that you definitely have people on the right who get very animated and you do their best to use the apparatus of the university to try to quench speech. Yeah, they do. I mean, of course. I mean, there's, there's, there's there, bozos everywhere. There, but... are, there are anti-BDS um, uh, laws on various campuses. Sure. And that's another thing that I've, they're, I've they're, talked they're, to they're Greg not... Lukianoff, myself, as well, Fisher, about. There's state laws, um, though. And that you've uh, mentioned before on the podcast. Well, where, they're, they're where crazy state laws. On that? Yeah. I'm not. What, where does he fall on that? I should write about this. Where does Greg fall on that? Yeah. I believe Greg is opposed to laws that uh, forbid BDS practitioners from expressing themselves on campus. Yeah. Which also include stuff like at the University of Texas, like a guy who gets a job at the campus radio station is not even a student, has to sign a pledge that he will never it, it, boycott it, it his is, and, and, and keeping in mind, this very, 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 be very specific about this. It is not the university, right? No, it's it state. is state law, yeah. uh-huh. and it's state law, like you know, in our, I think Arkansas had it, and New there York was, was pushing it. There was an alt weekly newspaper that had to sign this very similar pledge because they or or they lost advertising dollars because it was like a University of Arkansas or Alabama uh, that was advertising in the paper in their their estate institution, and they had to say, "Do you support or not support BDS?" Uh, if you're taking these ad dollars from a state institution, mm-hmm. this stuff is utter madness. Mm-hmm. And I think good people know that. But these are legislatures of like in Texas, like these aren't Jews that are passing this in Texas. Well, that's, I mean, but, in, but in New York, it is. Of it's course. Jews and Gentiles. Uh, of course. Cal- but, California, like General sure. Politano was uh, doing it at the University of California. Yeah, yeah, no, no, of course. These are bad laws. Mm-hmm. But this is not uh, the only point that I'm making is that it's not an institutional problem of the university. No, 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 no. University loads it's a, this politi- stuff it's a political thing tend not to be at uc berkeley a lot of you know card carrying you know menachem begin fans Jabotinsky-ites. i mean yeah, jabatinskyites <laughs> like, you know, like a little too extreme with the jabatinskyites but yeah that that of course is a problem and, and if you allow people that's the, i think this is this is ultimately the problem with this university stuff and when it becomes normalized and people accept it is that that language and those instincts are going to be occupied by people who have different worldviews and say, well, this is the toolkit. Now I'm going to use it. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame them in a way. And it's still the same bad results, mm-hmm. but this is, this is ultimately the problem. Well, we can't go forever, but I, I and I, yes, I we, we, can. Yes, we can. And I also, I want to recommend to people uh-huh. there. Uh, it was overlooked, but Michael Walzer, who knew he was still kicking around, wrote this dissent. Yeah. yeah, well, the founder of Descent wrote this really excellent essay on anti-Zionism. Yeah, you just—that hmm. was—that was great. Did I tweet it? Did I you, send you it to you? It us. Yeah, what's the title of it so people can look it up? I mean, it's so good. Maybe we can link to it. Uh, yeah, he's, I just think he's, it's he's really like, brilliant. Uh, that's uh, and if you want to see where Descent has descended to, you can yeah, read the response yeah. of the current editor in chief to his essay. Oh, the, the editor in chief responds uh-huh, to it. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> it's quite something. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, li- it's, I'm getting a, the, the circling wheel of death here. All right, we'll find it. Yeah. So, so quickly, it's really worth I, reading for people. Uh, do we have anything? Because I didn't. Uh, I wasn't going to qu- wrap. I had a question for Barry. If that's okay. No. So then okay. he wants to talk about okay. the impeachment. No, that's I don't want to talk about that. That's not um, what I'm saying. 
that Zionism is racist. You said we can't go forever. That usually I, means we we're done. And I wanted to get in one last oh, question. For fuck's sake, Commissioner. It's called um, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. It's a pretty straightforward topic. Wow. Well, this, this may, <laughs> Who wrote this, that one? This may, Google Michael Walser dissent. <laughs> I suspect there's really a relationship weird. between these two things, um, to be sure. Zionism is racism. Soviet um, idea. is a Soviet idea. And you sort of trace back the lineage of this. And as I was reading that in the book, I was reminded of some of the things that I've read from Black Lives Matter advocates who will oftentimes try to trace the historical roots of something Mm -hmm. um, in order to underscore just how bad it is or perhaps to put into context something that they dislike. You have this film like The 13th on Netflix, which cast mass incarceration as like slavery by another name. Mm -hmm. And when I encountered the phrase Zionism is racism, it's obvious to me that this is this is a bad argument. This is this is stupid. But the question is, is the phrase itself anti-Semitic? And I suspect hmm. what you would say is that the people who are using it aren't necessarily anti-Semites. They Correct. may or may not understand the historical significance of the phrase. But even the project of sort of looking backwards and trying to trace its origins. I think um, that's important. I'm trying to make people aware that they are, when they chant something like that on a campus or anywhere else, or when they, you know, when, when Mark Lamont Hill said, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was aware, actually, that he was spouting a Hamas slogan. Um, I'd say that's pretty fair. But I think it's important for him to know that in the same way that I think it's really important for the average person who just is marinating in, you know, sort of like the far left and again, is not an anti-Semite and finds themselves saying something like Zionism is racism for them to understand that they're sort of unwittingly parroting a talking point of the Soviet Union. And like, what are the implications of that? I think it's really important to know that. I don't think anyone who says that is an anti-Semite. Yeah, but if it doesn't... Do I think the Soviet Union project Mm -hmm. to push the idea that Zionism is racism is an anti-Semitic project? A hundred percent and absolutely. But if it doesn't have those associations in the imaginations of the people who are saying those things, why is it important for them to understand it? Well, in the same way that it's important for anyone to understand history at all. I mean, I don't I'm, I might be missing the question. Well, in the context of a sort of contemporary. I'm not, I'm not interested in helping people understand the history of that phrase because I am interested in putting as many people into the bucket of anti-Semitism as possible. Yeah. That is not my interest at Obviously. all. Yeah, yeah. My interest is in saying, hey guys, you're living in an ideological world, maybe without even realizing it on this particular topic, that the Soviet Union worked very, very hard and very successfully for you to be in. And I think it's important that you understand that. Is it your contention that this is the most potent way to make the argument against the folks who are likely to say Zionism is racism? Mm. Well, that's a strategic question. I think Mm -hmm. one is showing the history is extremely important. But then also I think making the case for Israel based on its merits is just as important. Mm -hmm. That's not the project of this book. um, But that I think is is incredible is incredibly important. But to do that, I think you also need to just like demolish the spuriousness of a lot of the lies that are out there right now. Um, because how can you even have a conversation about what something is if it's, if you're so, um, 
I don't know. Cut that. I don't know. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. I, I thought you were onto something. Was it's, I? Yeah, I think so. Okay, okay let's I'm, go back. And, and I'm, I'm really trying to yeah. understand because this is, it's not something I'm an expert in. But again, I got distracted. Also, stop texting. I'm not texting. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, getting the booty call, it's distracting no, no, no. me. I'm just sending a message. And and I was it's like, distracting me. I guess well, that's actually. His blood glucose I don't know. Over. I was like, what's going on? The vaping, I, the texting. No, I was, like, this is I, such a Jewish mother. I, was, I know. I was taking. Put your phone away. I was taking my insulin. I'm fine. <laughs> oh, my God. I find myself persuaded by the contention that this is a very unique sort of obsession for many people and that certain attributes of anti-Semitism sort of manifest themselves at all times in all places. And it's, it's bizarre. It's almost eerie. Um, but I also am always, I always hear this voice in the back of my head saying stuff like racism isn't special. Like mm. there is a nasty mm. something that is very human that always manifests itself where we, we demonize the other where tribes fight mm-hmm. with one another, where they find ways to imagine differences between each other. And then they, they'll massacre one another. They'll take advantage of one another. Mm-hmm. They'll systematically disenfranchise the other person. And oftentimes you forget that broader reality mm-hmm. when you're too hung up on the particularness of the circumstance or the conflict. Um, and I worry about that. I worry about the degree to which we sort of forget some of those those broader general things that we ought to be fighting against. If the the incivility of the moment is mm. promoting extremism, mm. then the 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 thing that I'm most concerned about might be that this specific conflict, but it might also be that we need to have different kinds of institutions. Um and we need to be safeguarding ourselves against certain kinds of concentrations of power. And that's mm. going to result in very different solutions. Um, Say more. Like, give give me more. Well, put ornaments on that. Tree. Well, it's the it's the reason why it's the reason why I use the example of like the thirteenth um, and I mass never incarceration. Saw that, but okay. But the the argument in the film is um, that in order to understand the various things that are wrong with the American criminal justice system, you need to understand one thing and one thing only: that white supremacy is sort of the dominant historical force in America. And that it explains why black people are overrepresented in prisons. It is the reason why. I just, I think that's a paltry argument. And I don't think that that gives you the tools to properly understand how we could fix this complicated problem. And quite frankly, it has to ignore a great many facts. Um, And I don't, I don't, I don't know that the same dynamics are at work at all. No, but I think what you're saying is maybe I'm guilty of doing the same by over fixating on this particular problem in this moment. Well, I'm asking if you've thought about that. And that's why I ask why it's important to, to understand the history. And it's a real question. Mm. It's not, it's not rhetorical in any stretch. I'm not trying to yeah. push you into a corner. Not because at all. I gotcha. No, I never <laughs> would feel that with you. I think that's good. I think, um, look, this is something I feel quite strongly about. And I think, is it possible that I'm overly fixated on it because of what happened at tree of life in the past year? And do I, I, I hope that you're right, that I'm wrong about how <laughs> bad it is in getting. Like, I, I very much hope that I'm wrong. What I know, just being a student of Jewish history or just of history in general, is that societies where anti-Semitism flourishes and where anti-Semites feel um, emboldened are societies that are in serious danger. And one of the, I think maybe... The strongest argument that I would make to, to 
non-Jews listening to this, I know it's all Jews, is that, you know, it's in your interest to to care about this topic mm-hmm. and fight against the resurgence of it. Because if anti-Semitism becomes normative in America, America's over. Like, I really think that. And I think sure. that just literally based on history. Like, and... I don't know if Moynihan, my righteous Gentile, uh, no, wants to I jump think, in. I think, that's, that's I think that's right. I mean, you know, and also I remember after 9-11, um, I think it's perfectly reasonable to over-index for something to happen and hope that it doesn't and be pleased that it doesn't mm-hmm. and not feel guilty that it didn't. And why I say that is that, you know, I was pretty concerned in 2002 that um, we were going to have Islamist attacks all over the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. And that was a perfectly reasonable thing to think when 3,000 people were incinerated about, you know, a mile and a half from you. Right. Um, that's, that, I think that's a, a, a reasonable thing to think. Um, the thing about anti-Semitism is, is that it applies itself everywhere. There's a kind of universal thing with anti-Semitism. And you can go to Antarctica and probably find an anti-Semite. It's yeah, that's a, the amazing thing is there's the, anti-Semitism in societies where there are no Jews. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the one thing is that you have to, like, in a way kind of laugh at it, is that <laughs> Jews are both at the same time, during the 20th century in particular, were blamed for the excesses of capitalism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the existence of communism. Yeah. From Karl Marx to Leon Trotsky. It's yeah, like, we did a, have something to do with that. Yeah, well, it's, it was, a, I mean, that was the, the, the Nazi argument. It was a Jewish, it was a Jewish plot, right? Uh, which one? Joking. Or, or it's both. become very hard to joke about that. Uh, both. <laughs> no, and there's an old, there's an old Jewish joke in, you know, Nazi Germany of a, the Jew sitting on the park bench reading the Volkischer Beobacht to the Nazi newspaper. And another Jew says, why the hell are you reading that? Because I hell? want to know what we did today. Yeah. Yeah, no, and he, no he's, he's like, you know, it's a, we live in a miserable existence. We're being oppressed. He's like, I just like to read something that says that I control the banks and I own this and I own that. And that's that's the thing is that is that you own everything. And, um, you know, it's funny when Americans see Jews who are poor. This is a funny thing is I've actually had conversations with people about this. It's like you go to South Williamsburg where I live and like there, there there's houses that are just uh-huh. full and there's like 30 people yeah, and yeah, I've yeah. had people say to me like it's incredible it's poor Jews and I'm like yeah no <laughs> yes. that's, that's what do you think they're all I mean <laughs> you kidding me yeah no it's like I mean these are people who grow up and like you know <laughs> Westchester yeah exactly I mean it's like they, they've never met a Jewish person who like lived in a tenement they like, never, they never saw yeah. Once Upon a Time in America yeah, <laughs> or, or, yeah. <laughs> or Fiddler in the Roof for Christ's sake it's in well, Poland in a shtetl you know I, I don't know how much longer we're going to go Bear I wanted to say something about my favorite part of the book, though, this sort of Baldwin-esque moment where you refer to what anti-Semitism does to a country where it really has taken root. It corrupts the society in which it takes root because it is a lie. And that is a sentiment that I think can't be repeated enough times about the many pernicious lies that manifest themselves. Uh, But yeah, that was a, a favorite moment of mine. So... It's um, so yeah. nice how carefully you read this. It's really nice. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I read it really, really fast today. So I, well, I know, but it's like really on your mind. Yeah. But I, I think about things it's deeply. It's nice. I, yeah, try. I, know. I try. I also, especially when I find that, oh, there are some places where there might be some disagreements and I'm mm-hmm. going to talk to someone I like a lot and I want to be certain that I can mine this in a way that is useful for me. 
and that is constructive. Do you know Camille said that to me on the way over? This is how he's like concerned that I like Barry. I don't have <laughs> if I have a point that I disagree. I'm like it's fine. <laughs> she's Camille. Tough. He said he, he said savage her. Yeah, that's I, what I you said in the car. I did. You said I have, have been no so thoroughly mercy. savaged. I know. Like, yeah. There's yeah. nothing more. You can't take I, me lower I, than well. I can can we if we have to back out at this point? Can I ask you about Uh-oh. that? Can I ask you what it, it, have, have things gotten better? This is a good. And this. In this front, because I mean, we've talked about this of like the days that you don't want to leave the house. That at the very beginning, you would sound so depressed. (laughs) Well, I mean, come on, I would be too. You mean you mean at the very beginning, very beginning, two years ago, two years ago, when you no year and a half, when you first started immigrants, they get the job done. Yeah, that kind of stuff happens. (laughs) Which the book comes out, and it's just all like there's all commenters. You you mentioned in the book that I think it was Alana Newhouse from Tablet who gave you a necklace that said, "Don't read the comments." Comments cause cancer. Comments cause cancer. <laughs> and you, of course, uh, did... My girlfriend monitors many of the comments for me now. Well, she does. Yeah, other people do it for yeah. me now. That's one of See, the, the thing it's is... one of the benefits of fame, guys. And by the way, <laughs> and by the way, I... Beg other people to it's do it's Just second to you, but I love your girlfriend dearly. She's one of my favorite people. And I should just me tell too. her she should also not read the comments. It's just not good for anybody. Because, you know, it might be like, oh my God, they have a point. I think I'm going to... I think I'm going to get out. I should kill myself today <laughs> to get out of this relationship. Um, kidding, kidding. It, I'm, I'm okay and happy. It's, it's fine. So, yeah, I, I would imagine that the book How to Fight Anti-Semitism is probably going to bring the trolls out. Because you you have a little troll magnetism to you. They come out know, what after you. What do you think you. it is? Um, like, one of the number one questions book. I get from people is like, yeah. why do people hate you so much? Well, what are you I, doing? I don't know how to answer that's, this. That's like, the thing for the girl on the subway who's reading your book. Yeah. Like, one doesn't know. Is she afraid to read this because, wow, they'll find out that I'm a Jew? <laughs> yeah. Or they'll or, find out I like Barry White. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. And if it's both. And geez, yeah, you're, it's all over at that when point. I did, when I did the event, I was telling this to Moynihan. I did an event at um, Greenlight, the bookstore in Fort Greene, the other night with Megan Dom. It was her book launch. Mm-hmm. And this woman who had been in the front row was, I thought, giving me the death stare. It turned out she was like a super fan and like whispered <laughs> to me, you know, that she can't tell anyone that she likes me so much. Yeah. And she's like completely closeted in her politics and actually told me she was like moving out of Brooklyn because she couldn't take it. Um, but it was really quite interesting that night alone. It was a small group. I mean, it was like maybe 50 people there standing room only, but it's a small space. At least three people came up to me and told me they were completely closeted in their political views. And these were liberals like these were not conservative. I think and most of these are New Yorkers. I correct. Think and, yeah. and I think that to answer it's like closeted in the freest society in the world. I was to answer Camille's question is that I, I think that's part of it because they're liberals and because, you know, I know you're broadly know your political beliefs and I don't see you as anybody's conservative, right? And you sometimes, you know, make allegiances and you have allies who are conservatives because they care about some of the issues you care about. And it just happens to to fan out that way. But I think it's also, it's where you are. Nobody cares if you are writing the exact same columns for the Wall Street Journal. Nobody cares. Exactly. You're on their territory. You're doing, you're like, we don't, we don't need to read you. We don't want to see you. We don't want to know that you exist. We don't be exposed to different ideas. We don't want to grapple with those ideas. And particularly in, to use the very fashionable word amongst a lot of these people, in our spaces, right? This is our place and you cannot be a part of it. I remember that at, at Newsweek, then we published a Niall Ferguson cover story. And it was like, why, why? you shouldn't vote for Obama, right? Mm-hmm. It was in 2012. 
And he's so charming. There was some, he is a very charming guy. And there were some factual inaccuracies. Uh-huh. In it. It just this, it, they weren't huge. But it, there was an insane amount of coverage of this. And there were letters coming in and people went crazy and crazy and crazy. And I realized at that point that if this was published in National Review, nobody would have noticed. Right. And even if they saw it, they'd be like, okay, somebody Who doesn't cares? like Obama in National Review. It's like, oh, no, no, you're in our territory now. Yeah. And we don't like ceding any of that ground to you. And if we do, you know, you better be very careful. And, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like, you know, you said something on Joe Rogan's podcast that we talked about one time is that the idea that people have to nut up, which I think is a funny phrase. Um, I feel that way. I mean, that people have to be brave about their political views and just say what they believe. To me, that is the strongest feeling that I have, like having come to the Times, written this book, Mm. waded into every hot button thing. There's something just so liberating about being out Mm. Honestly, and the thing that's like giving me a lot of energy right now is I really feel like the legions of people who are doing that are growing. I think that's true. I really feel that. I think I think that's true. It's very I I think it's very common. I had someone come up to me the other day and say something very similar. They listened to the podcast and they made a joke of like I, um, you know, uh, start. It's true. I think I told you about this. Like, start the Patreon so I can give you money for when you're canceled. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And I was like, wait, do I? And you know, it, but it, the beauty it, of the being canceled is like, you know, if you've been canceled, you've probably done. I'm not talking obviously about like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, like or, people who deserve it. Yeah, yeah. There's people who deserve it, yeah. but a lot of people who don't deserve it have gotten canceled, and those people tend to be really interesting, heterodox, and independent people. But isn't it weird that that we live in in New York City? And I my thought when I think about your life and your private life and you at work and how people react to you in these places. Um I think about your girlfriend who I know and you know who's been written about so I don't think this is any secret. And um I think about you guys going to parties and going to dinner parties in this kind of maybe clashes of different backgrounds and a lot of people that you're friends with have similar views to you. And I'm like, good God, we live in New York City and I worry that people are just that intolerant. Like that I'm gonna get like beat up. No, not beat up. (laughs) Beat up. But it's like I have had instances in my past, which is what trained me not to talk about any of this stuff ever in public. And if I do, I'm like, well, you know, you have a good point that, you know, the 9-11 was an inside job. Great. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> um, and I have a picture on my phone from somebody's house I was at recently that had a poster that said Bush did 9-11. This was from oh last weekend. Um, a par- yeah, a parent. Um, cool. So, no, but just in, in the thing of like, That's if you insane. say something that is a little kind of out of the ordinary for them at some sort of dinner party or something like that it's just going to stop the conversation. And if it's a parent at school or something like that, they're going to treat you differently or not talk to you anymore. And so I just what think, do you do? I just think it's, I, you just, you ignore it and you just keep going and you find the people that are normal because I think it's insane that I'm, uh, the I default, would just know, yeah. the default, I mean, literally the default is I think that people are going to be intolerant and I do not have views that are crazy by most people's standards, you yeah. know, and it's just like, I assume like, well, they know that I just, 
I guess, I guess I'm screwed, you know? Yeah. And people say, when people say to me, like a parent says to me, and this has happened at school, I listen to the podcast. I'm like, oh, fuck. I never yeah. know. And it's so I funny. I never know like, what the response is going to yeah, be. Yeah, I never know what the response is going to yeah. be. Like if somebody who, who does like fucking Pod Save America or some shit like that is not like, I listen to the yeah. podcast, they're like, oh, great. You know, right. they, don't, they don't feel the way that I do. Yeah. And I think that probably if I was in a place that was super conservative and they said the same thing, I would also be scared. Yeah. Right? My uh, phenotypic traits give me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not familiar with those. Give me a, superpowers. Well, yeah, kind yeah. of. Yeah, melanin force field. Yeah, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the interesting heterodox perspectives that I have, I I might not be as willing to share if I were someone else. If I if I'm honest about it, but mm -hmm. I do, but I do think I notice more people being brave. But I also frequently as a Brooklynite, a formally now, because I've, I've lived in Brooklyn for a while, but I've, I've only owned in Brooklyn for a little while. So now I'm like, I'm here and I, mm -hmm. I can't leave um, unless I just, you know, go bankrupt and get foreclosed. There's on. a really good hopefully, uh, chance hopefully of all this. No one will just pay this like 12 months from now. But so Camille, you see what happened? Yeah, to um, but, but Camille, why do you think people are being more brave? I don't know. Yeah. I, it, it's just a sensibility. It's just a sense that I have. Yeah. Maybe it's mm. just optimism that that's happening. Cause I don't, I don't When know. people say to you and say to me, and this has happened a lot of times actually, that this podcast is a great refuge for them the because, because they don't, they're not Democrats. They're not Republicans. They're not uh -huh. liberals. They're not conservatives. And they kind of like the weird mix of politics is I think that it's also the way that when Barry writes about sort of modern far right anti-Semitism, the way that that is dispersed is, you know, 8chan and all of these weirdo things online. The same thing is true of why people are being slightly more brave is it's easier to crush somebody because of the internet. And it's also easier to tell people that there are other people out there that have ordinary boring that, views like that's you too. Very true. That's and very it's true. like, you know, yeah. I, you know, people who yeah. listen to, I don't know, Sam Harris's podcast or these things, um, which I don't, it's not, I don't really listen to, but I know he was a guy that was an atheist before. Mm -hmm. And I think his book was po positively reviewed in the nation, uh, the, that book, the letter to a Christian nation, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wouldn't have thought twice about him. And then I find out that he's a, a meditation guru and slash place where people who have slightly heterodox views, uh, find, find refuge. And, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, they're not actually heterodox views. Mm -hmm. They're completely ordinary views. I mean, heterodox views, I think maybe <laughs> they're very different than what I think and what you think. It's heterodox to the culture that we are in right now and right. we exist in. Yeah. And I know that if I'm in an editorial meeting, if I'm this, I change the way that I talk. And I don't do it because I'm embarrassed by anything, but it's just a natural survival instinct that, you know, you don't want, you're, I, yes. you're protecting yourself against I, other people's misinterpretations of what you believe. But I have to say, I think that there's something in my personality where I lack that survival instinct a little bit, hmm. meaning I have it. I know I have it less than you and I've always been that way. And I'm willing to be, I think some people just because of their personality are willing to be yeah. more contrarian in situations. Absolutely. And I've lost, I used to have it. Thing. I lost it. Yeah. I don't know why I lost it. I used to be, you know, Joanna, who, you know, um, used to tell Hi, me Joanna. ages and ages and ages ago, like, please don't do this at dinner tonight. When we go to a dinner party, when mm. somebody would say something stupid, I'd be like, oh, here we go. My, my and wife. I looked, I looked like fucking Max Schmeling. I was like, all right, let's go. Let's go. And they'd be like, what? And I, and I remember one time somebody said to me at, um, that 9-11 
was oh no that Israel was responsible for 9-11 Jonah, Jonah was there she can tell you about uh, this uh, and an I an educated, educated person. yes edu- very highly educated, educated. Ha- several PhDs yeah, as yeah, we know nine oh. PhDs it was Judith Butler <laughs> <laughs> I, I went fucking bananas on this person and at, the, and at the end it was just like could you please stop I think she's dead and, <laughs> and I was like okay fine and I, it changed in some way I've seen that guy that, you yeah you've seen that do you guy think, do you think it's age or yeah I think it's you know having a kid changed I was like I want to make sure For that I have money yeah. That, but, yeah but some of it is the circumstance mm-hmm. isn't it's it? the circumstance like, too because the newsrooms <clears throat> and the buildings yeah. and the offices are somewhat different it and is it, it is and it can be a little more frightening I suspect for some people again not me because I have the melanin force field working towards my advantage like if I <laughs> if I say you're overstating the awfulness of Donald Trump yeah, yeah. like I can get you can away get away with, with it. that yeah yeah, there are definitely yeah. certain things I know. I Nobody's like, ever I have to, overstating I have to pick the office of Donald Trump. But. <laughs> I, to, yeah. I still have to pick my battles. Of course. Yeah, of course. But, you know, I think one of the liberating things for me, and don't worry about me at parties. It's fine. It always goes well. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it generally just really does. Well, that's, that's always the thing. It's like people person, like, oh, it's just, hard to hate you. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. I hear it's hard to hate me. but You have a magnetic personality. I can't believe yeah. she didn't have blood all over her I face know, and like, right? a, like a, a, a carcass in her hand. Like, ah, I can't believe. But it, it, is, it is hilarious. No, but, I, no, but the thing I was going to say that I think is liberating, and I think, I think it makes sense that having kids changes this, is like, mm-hmm. Okay, what's the worst possible thing that's going to happen to me? I get mm. fired from the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm really, con- like, the thing that I'm fighting for, the values that I'm fighting for, the ideas I'm fighting for are so much bigger than me. And they're so much bigger than where I work at this moment. And I really see myself as, like, that's what I'm ultimately loyal to. And but, there's something, like, truly liberating about yeah, that. Yeah, but feeling. you also, you must also have the feeling that that platform is unique. In the sense that you'll be fine. Say somebody at, you know, commentary or, you know, <laughs> the, the, you know, Jerusalem Post. Somebody who's like, oh, I love this book. Hires you. I feel like I'm being stereotyped here, Mike Michael. Why? Because you're Jewish. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think yeah. he's talking about your privilege. Yeah, I think I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> exactly. Um, it says, oh, I love uh, Barry's but I'm going to give you the exact same money. You, you convert people, I think, now. I think oh, people yeah. read your columns and be like, oh, actually... I've been reading X columnist in this paper for years, and that's actually a pretty interesting spin on things. And writes you a letter, right? Oh, oh you, no, no, that's I, I don't want to understate at all. Like you don't want to le- lose that too. Abs- in some way, the, the past two years and the platform of the New York Times have. Like, as you know, I've had the ideas, the very boring ideas I've had for years. I wrote about them in the journal and tablet for years. I'm just doing the same thing at a different platform. And that platform has made all the difference. A hundred percent. I'm just saying when I go to the worst case scenario, what for some people is the worst case scenario is not for me. Yeah. It just isn't. Like, it's not like. Increasingly less so for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so I don't know. I just I feel like there are like one of the things that's been really clarifying about the past two years and I mean, both being at the Times and also Trump and and everything is there are things that are just way bigger and more important than prestige to me mm-hmm. and being and being popular. Mm-hmm. Like, I just really don't care that much about it. You don't. Mm. I don't. Mm. There is. I don't. I have a problem. Because when with I that. look. Yeah. I mean, Not with you. No, I have a problem. I have my own problem. No, I mean, my personality, as yeah. you know, like I desperately like being liked and pleasing people. Sure. That's true about me as I know it's true about you. Yes. 
However, Unfortunately. when I am able to sort of like step outside of my life and look at my life, I'm also super aware that like the people, this sounds cheesy, but it's true for me. Like the people that I've most admire and certainly historically, but even now are people that were often wildly disliked and out of step. And there's something really comforting about that for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a thing that plays like a, a sort of loop of Christmas music in a store in December. It's just like bothering me, and I know it back to front, is everybody in, that I've ever admired. Every book that I've read, and I said, that is just something that just sh- shifted my baggage in a very particular way. And every time I look at that person and who they were, they were somebody who didn't mind, you know, kicking sand and, you know, just sort of punching somebody in the gut when it needed to happen, not needlessly. Those, mm-hmm. are, those people are people that go and do talk radio and you know, go on Fox News and the rest of it, um, or MSNBC. I don't want to pick on Fox News, uh, but you know, I mean, f- for for me, I still I still have the instinct of of pleasing people and that kind of thing. But you know, and I wor- I'm the type of guy also that worries that people are saying bad things when I walk out of the room. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I am somebody who, and people find this really incongruous that that. Um, I, t- good examples today. I was in an edit and somebody looked at something um, that I was cutting together for the show on Thursday. And they're like, I don't know if you want that. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm perfectly willing to humiliate myself on camera if, it, if it's funny mm. or if it's like entertaining in some way. But like, it's a completely different thing if like I'm around people and I say something, uh, you know, something politically and it, and it, and it lands with a thud mm-hmm. on the dinner table. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh. And I just sit there sheepishly and I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, cut my lamb now <laughs> rather than, rather than like happily humiliate myself on, on camera. I, I don't care. But this, th- those things well, are... Because, listen, because that's obvious. They're both about being liked. Uh, of course. That's true. Of course. You know, yeah, 100%. People but, laughing but, at you is an amazing feeling. Uh, of course. But, pe- Shrink in. but, but most m- most people look at that and they say, I don't think you want that in there. This happened to you today. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was, actually. Because this, there's going, there's this two, two, two minute segments that we're going to have in the show of me getting very, very drunk with people in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which I mentioned before. And at the end of the second one, the editor put this thing in with one of the guys who's talking to me. And hopefully I'll put it online. I'll probably put it on Instagram. Guy says, like, well, do you think we're we're okay? And I was like, no, I think we're fucked. And obviously we're fucked because I'm doing this fucking show. And, <laughs> and, and, you, and the shot of me, I have never been... You vis- look horrible. I have never been visibly more drunk on camera in my life. My eyes are like slits. My hair is all over the place. And I'm like... Like going back and forth. I, and I was in my twelfth drink or something, and they they were like, "Yeah, I know you don't want that in there." And I'm like, "I'm sorry, what?" <laughs> I'm like, "No, Plug that we should lead with that. That's the start." Of course. But yeah, there's always a thing like they want to protect you from humiliating yourself. I'm like, "No, no, no, I like that. I just don't like when people don't like me from for for my politics." Yeah, because I just know how boring they are. And I, I know that I could have politics that people should legitimately not like me for. And I don't hate like those. Camille. Well, no, yeah, like Camille. Yeah, Camille. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, my politics are interesting. Yeah, yeah. is that what you call it? Interesting now? and Wait, also well thought can out. Can we just yeah. see before Fuck we end? Because I'm, I'm embarrassed I don't know this. Oh. Do you like any of the presidential candidates? No. Okay. No. Do any of you like any Are you of not saying Tulsi Gabbard because Barry Larson? <laughs> no, I don't. But I don't like Tulsi Gabbard as a, as yeah. a polit- politician. Yeah. I, I detest most of her platform. I think from a foreign policy standpoint, I am a non-interventionist. And it certainly makes me happy when I see someone on stage who's willing to break with the conventional wisdom that we ought to be everywhere at all times. And at a minimum, the only thing that we can actually get in trouble for is the conflicts that we walk away from when bad things happen. 
and we don't ever get in trouble for the conflicts that we needlessly insert ourselves into where bad mm-hmm. things happen. Cause at least we tried, which I think that's the wrong instinct. Um, and I'm not Pollyanna ish when it comes to these things. I'm just, I'm not of the belief that everywhere America projects its power, we're going to have good outcomes. I know that we can potentially have bad outcomes and in in any number of cases, we're almost certainly going to have unexpected outcomes, which this is something that we should be aware of. That's, that's the 20th century for you and the past 20 years too, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think, I I mean, it's it's just, but as far as, as far as candidates, I think one of the great things about these candidates is, is that it reminds you to never trust anybody who goes all in for a candidate and wears the t-shirts and holds the signs and the mm-hmm. rest of it. Because I, I'm, I, I don't trust anyone who has, whose beliefs happen to align exactly with any of these candidates. Because, you know, I've always said this, and I'm sure we've discussed this before, is that there's no natural reason why your opinion on guns and abortion should match up. This is true. It's only yeah. tribalism, right? Yeah. But so I find myself doing that sometimes. And like, I can see like Andrew Yang and I'm like, oh my God, I think I'm in the Yang gang. This and then he said something else. I'm like, what the yeah, fuck, yeah. dude? Like, he, what are you talking about? I cannot believe how much I under like I was looking in my email for something uh-huh, uh-huh. and I saw that he had emailed me several times asking me to write about him like, <laughs> like, really? pitching, like pitching things this was like in 20, like you know more yeah. than a year ago and I was like I don't know what this is yeah I, I, I mean yeah, he yeah. has gone so much farther than I ever thought yeah let me amend, I love amend it. my previous statement by the way it might be it might have been that he pitched an op-ed but I think yeah. he, he was reaching, <laughs> it, they were emails from Andrea yeah. Yeah. well I'll amend my previous statement there, there isn't a candidate that I like, but there is certainly a hierarchy of contempt. There are certain sure, candidates that right. I completely detest, whose politics are completely objectionable to me, who I just can't tolerate. And I, I can't imagine a world where I could live with them having one. Um, and it has everything to do with their ideas, which is why Donald Trump isn't at the top of that hierarchy, because I don't think he has any ideas to sell. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, right. it's easier for me in some cases where other people like are petrified and tremble to, to simply laugh at his ridiculousness because I think he's an empty suit. Whereas certain ideas are toxic and dangerous in a way that people don't appreciate right. and were they ever to win out, I think that would be very bad ideas that result in profound concentrations of power mm-hmm. and give government the ability to do just about anything in mm-hmm. every scope of your life. Like it, that is terrifying to me. But Camille, is there a part of you that, that I, th- I think there's a little tiny uh, sliver of me that, that becomes the ordinary voter who's not involved or interested in politics. And that is the person who reacts to somebody's magnetic personality. And that's it. Right. And that used mm-hmm. to be entirely how we chose candidates. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, uh, it probably, probably still is. Yeah. But, so we're all affected. And, by and, it. and it's so funny because when you isolate all your beliefs, you just push them to the other side and that little thing takes hold of you, which it, it often can. I say, man, I really like Bernie. I, honest to goodness. Hmm. I mean, I, I interviewed him. I liked him personally. I think he's uh, crotchety in the way that I like. I, he's the Larry David guy in the way that I like. He's like, you know, really sharp, in this, not Wait, not so in, you intellectually. You love Jane Fonda. You love Bernie. Yeah, yeah. You are, what has happened to you? I have to talk to you. I've gotten this. very soft. I, I, I have. I what have, is happening? I, I bought a house in Nicaragua. It's a long story. Uh, it's beautiful property, by the way. Um, a collective farm. Uh, no, I just like. No, I'm saying only on that sliver of like I get more and more 
why people love that guy. Yeah. And the more mm. I see the interactions of him and other candidates, mm. he's a couple of moments on the stage where he's made like funny jokes. He's like these little sharp quips, like after he came out of the hospital with the heart attack and everything. And it's exactly the same reason that people like Donald Trump, because I will never, ever stop laughing at the you'd be in jail. It's yeah. still fucking hilarious. I mean, it's, good it's a great, it's great timing. It's a yeah. great line and just wrong. That too <laughs> is good. I mean, like these are things that people like r- respond to and it's, it's, it's the collapse of the kind of conservative establishment. The DC conservative establishment is because, you know, you go to an AI dinner and it's like, nobody fucking cares. <laughs> I thought we care. I thought everyone yeah. cared. I'm like, oh, they're giving the, the medal to, to Milton Friedman or yeah. like Friedrich Hayek's cousin, Bill Hayek or something. Like no one cares about this that, stuff. That, Literally nobody that cares. That dimension of the so rise of Trump is the, is yeah. the most depressing thing. Certainly yeah. that and the, the rise of extremism on, on sort of all sides of the political spectrum, the, the increased partisan rancor that, bothers me but could, could most certainly you, the disappearance yeah. of the genuine conservative who i thought was like the goldwater conservative i thought it was a thing do you I think there was anyone cared about something does anyone here honestly is an honest question think that anyone that was a just a, a sort of rock rib died the wool republican who voted just straight down the ticket republican ever believed in free trade ever even thought about free trade well the ones that flipped you mean i mean just no just any of them I just, I honestly don't think it was an issue that anyone ever cared about. No, I know who those, the people are that cared about them. They work at the Wall Street Journal editorial. Uh, precisely. Mm-hmm. And even There's they, and, and even they got, <laughs> they, even <laughs> they've gone, ten. no, but even they've gone soft on this. They've gone some, soft on the China them. stuff uh, in ways that, yeah, they still defend it. They still think it's a bad idea, but you know, y- y- you also have the man who's the great guru of this, Larry Kudlow in the White House. Sitting next to Robert Lighthizer. Well, this is they care fucking about insane. power more than anything else. They do. That has been the lesson of this entire Amen. depressing It's power. Years. They care about power, and the American people don't care about free trade because they expect it. It's a, it's a background thing that exists. We go to Walmart, and that stuff's there, and thank God we live in a free country. We can buy stuff cheap, and it's not expensive like it is in Sweden. And then they say, we got to save the jobs by putting up all these okay. barriers. Is Trump going to win again? I don't know. I don't do political prognostication. I'll say, it's a mugs game. I'll say slightly better than 50% chance. Yeah, I would say that's probably right. That's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, was, strong, I was super wrong strong, before. Strong economy and uh, he's still trending in the right direction in the purple states. Yeah. yeah. That's if I was going to go with all of the things I learned in my political science courses, that's what I would say. Everybody I talked to in Bay Ridge was like strong economy. Do you think Elizabeth Warren's going to be the nominee though? I really hope not. I would also say better than 50% chance. Me too. Yeah. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure most Bernie su- Sanders supporters are actually willing to just sort of port their way over to her. If he were to disappear from the race, I, I think, think it's going to be more complicated than that. I think but, a lot more, it'll be an easier sell than going to Hillary Clinton. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Isn't the greatest thing about this is that the kind of internal, idea of and mechanisms of identity politics in which they love to push out against everybody else then they aim at each other and how many times have you seen this thing of that bernie sanders uh, supporters will not 
go to Elizabeth Warren on mass because they're Bernie bros and they're sexists. And I'm like, I, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> that's, that's not what I was alluding to. No, I know, but I think it's but hilarious. Yeah. I see this all the time. I'm like, what? Is there some data on this? Or you yeah. just, just, yeah. Well, just our, our uh, past guest, Walt Hickey, who I work with, uh, he's done data on this and it's just not true. Yeah, that's what There's no proof of sexism. But, but, but there was <laughs> enough of, uh, of an idea of this that he actually went and did the data on exactly, it. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. it, was, it, was it was a question that needed to be answered. Unbelievable. Well, right. if I if we were to go longer, we could have a conversation about whether or not black people are willing to vote for a gay Democratic Pete. presidential nominee or if they have a problem with jungle fever and as a result are going to object to Kamala Harris on the basis of the, her selection of a bait. And jungle fever, <laughs> for anyone listening, yeah. is a very underrated Spike Lee film. It is actually an underrated Spike but also but if, she's not even in the running at this point. Barry, you realize if you open up this Pandora's box, this is going to be longer than okay, the yeah, bridge yeah, on the river. <laughs> okay, okay. Close us. That was, that, was, that was it. That yeah, was the close. That was, it. that was it close? That was Are it. we done? Yes. I was trying yes. to. I was going to do the whole Stevie Wonder Jungle Fever. Oh, you got jungle fever. Oh, you guys are going to be out of Yeah, that's good. We're in love. All right. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. 